0: My dad has a friend named Arnie who is uh, essentially a homeless person. Uh, I say essentially because he's not really a homeless person. But if you saw him, you wouldn't know he's not a homeless person. Uh, He's always wearing usually sweatpants and like a jacket. He hasn't, I don't think he's shaved or trimmed his beard or had a haircut probably in a decade. wears this filthy hat. It's like a ball cap, but it's some kind of Chevy racing cap. But you wouldn't know that unless you got close enough to see the outline and the contours of the, the embroidery on the front, because it's all just the same color filth. And I don't know how often it's true, but he always seems drunk. His reactions are not quite right when you talk to him. To me he's like a really typical homeless guy, but Arnie's not homeless. See um, Arnie's got not one but two properties that are adjacent. He owns um, two pieces of property that touch each other. Uh, He lived in a house and then he owned a duplex uh, next door. And he rented out these, you know, these two, whatever you want to call them, townhouses, condos, apartments. And uh, when he started getting older, he stopped taking care of his property and and eventually the roof on his house collapsed. And rather than get it fixed, which I'll get to in a minute, um, he decided to move into the apartment one of the two apartments um, because at that time he had no tenants. so he had these two empty apartments so rather than fix his house, he moved to the apartment you know <laughs> it's probably 20 yards away it wasn't like a big deal. but a couple of years after that a tree fell on the apartment building. And uh, and I don't know whether he ever reported it to the insurance or not. But he started living in his car in the driveway of the house. And that was probably ten years ago talking about upstate New York so you know in the summer it gets in the 90s and the winter it gets to below zero especially at night and he would live in his car now the property he owned was already a junkyard because he had he had two pickup trucks uh, both older that he wasn't driving parked next to each other and then he had his ex-wife's Jaguar that I don't know what the story with there parked next to the trucks and then at one point he bought himself a brand new car and uh, and he, yeah, yeah you heard that right the homeless guy bought himself a brand new car so he bought himself a brand new car but it started acting up and it would stall on him so he got tired of it stalling on him so he bought a brand new other car so in the one driveway he had two trucks, a motorcycle and a Jaguar, and then in his other driveway, he had two cars one was a year old, one was brand new. Um, and he lived in the second new car, so that was his existence in a couple of places around town. He would go to every day, kind of make the rounds, and then by the evening, he was back in the driveway. He's the nicest man. I think at, he'll talk to you, he's interested He's interested in what you're saying, so he doesn't just listen, you know, you've got something going on, he wants to hear all about it, not in a nosy way, he wants to know whatever you want to tell him, he wants to know, and he remembers things, even though every time I talk to him, he seems like he's drunk, I can tell him the littlest detail, man, and he remembers that, every bit of it six months later. when I first met Arnie I was about five years old and he was a co-worker of my father's and and they used to have a picnic in the summer it's a big deal all these families would get together it's probably you know 50 to a hundred families would get together and um, back then Arnie was married and he had two stepdaughters who were about a year or two younger than me and uh, they would all come to the picnic and uh I was so young, it was the first time I ever met anybody with a beer gut. Like a real, serious, obvious health concern beer gut. And um, the first time I met him, my father introduced me to him. And I, and I, uh, I guess I said out loud in front of him, I didn't know that men could be pregnant. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't hate me now, so that's good. But yeah, this enormous beer got in this big mustache. And my father's a nuclear engineer. These were all like super smart people, super nerdy guys. And Arnie was a little, a little different. You know, he's a little bit older than most of the guys there, and he drove a motorcycle sometimes. And he had this old '71 Ford pickup. And uh, and I knew him my whole life. And Arnie went to work where my father worked. About. 20 years before my father did. So my father was a school teacher for 10 years, and then Arnie's about 10 years older than my dad, so um, it's about 20 years ahead of him. And uh, at one time, the place they worked was run by General Ele- General Electric. And General Electric in the 60s and 70s used to like re- like to reward people with uh, stock. That was apparently a common thing they would do. And then GE started, you know, the Jack Wall state started splitting left and right. Now Arnie also was a very frugal guy, so you add you combine these two things, and ended up that he had a ton of money, a ton of money. And he and my dad used to Friday night after work would go to the same bar, have a couple beers. Arnie would smoke a bunch of cigarettes, and uh, they just watched I don't know whatever. Men men in bars, you know, they watch TV. So sometimes I got to go, and uh, and I always liked talking to Arnie. He was a nice guy, and he always had lots of questions. He always wanted to know what's going on with us. You know, me or my brother. My brother was there, but my brother didn't like going to the bar that much. And we would sit and watch the news or some sporting event or whatever was on the TV and shooting the shit. And uh, I remember one Saturday afternoon, my dad went to go meet Arnie at the bar. They were having a couple beers and uh, Arnie was looking at the TV and I wasn't paying any attention. And he said, oh, shit. And I never heard heard him kind of react. He's he's one of the calmest people I've ever met in my life. Like he doesn't react to things. He's not a, uh, he's a serene man. So I looked at the TV to see what was going on and it was just a stock ticker, like a stock presentation ticker thing. And I said, uh, what's the matter? And he said, I just lost a quarter million dollars. And I thought, oh, it's crashing. And by this time, I was a teenager. I was like, man, the stock market's crashing. And I looked up at it, and it was down like, I don't know, five <laughs> percent or something. I thought, oh, geez. And I later asked my dad, how much money does Arnie have? And my dad says, a lot, you know, a lot. He's got a lot of money. But what he did in his property was he rented one of those apartments. He was a tenant of someone else. And he lived there in this little apartment and he, you know, he worked, he was an engineer, he made good money and, uh, and he lived in this little apartment. I think he said the rent was $60 a month and he didn't spend any money. But when the landlord decided they were going to retire and sell both properties, he just bought them both cash. He was a young guy, like maybe early thirties bought the house and he bought the apartment. So then he rented out the two apartments and he lived in the house and, uh, and, you know, still did not spend any money. So he worked for, until he was in his early seventies, you know, he worked for probably almost 50 years like that. (laughs) So that's how he's a homeless guy with two new cars. So especially in the winter, I like to stop by and see him because I feel bad and I don't know what to do. I, I asked my dad about it, like you know, why don't we do something about getting his house fixed? And my dad said, just leave him alone. Don't talk to him about it. I'm like, all right. At some point, I was away for I guess almost 15 years. At some point while I was away, he ended up getting divorced and uh, I think I don't know his wife left prior to his home his, his uh, car car living scenario. And um, so in the winter, I like to go see him as often as I can because I feel like he's kind of in a bad spot, you know? Nobody really pays attention to him. And, uh, you know, he goes to the diner every day, but if you don't show up one day, the diner's not gonna know to panic. So uh, so I am trying to go like once a week just to check on him, make sure he's okay. And uh, this past winter, one day I went to go see him and his ankles were swollen. I don't even know how to describe it. It looked like it's somebody had stuck one of those basketball pumps in his ankle and pumped up his ankles and his feet. They're like, unbelievable. He couldn't put shoes on. He was sitting in the car. and But he'd been to the doctor and he got medicine the day before or two days before, or so he said, but I, I don't know how good he is with time. And so I don't know if that's right or not. But, um... He, uh, I was worried about him and his feet, and so I said, "Well, I'll, I'll come back and check on you tomorrow." And I went back the next day, and his car wasn't there, which was somewhat normal. You know, he'd go and do these, run these errands, you just go do whatever. He'd go to the diner in the morning, have breakfast, then he'd drive around. He'd go to his place, he'd read the newspaper at the Stewarts. Anyway, so. Uh, Next day I went there, his car wasn't there. Third day, no car. And uh, I started to get kind of panicked. So I started calling hospitals. In the third or fourth hospital I called, uh, he was there. So I went to go see him. They had admitted him in the hospital and given him all his medicine and he was doing better. His feet were normal size. Been in the hospital about a week, I guess. And uh, he was glad I went to go see him. We talked for a bit. And I said, well, let me know uh, when you get out. You know, I'll come check on you. He said, all right. So like a week goes by, I don't hear from him. So I'm like, oh, I'll go back and see him at the hospital. So I drove back over there and uh, they had checked him out. He was checked out. But because I'm not family, the, uh, they wouldn't tell me where, where he went or what he was doing. And I said to the nurse, I'm like, I was just here a week ago. You thanked me for coming because no one had come to visit him. Clearly, I'm the only one who cares because my dad travels all the time, so my dad wasn't around. He was out of the country, I think, at the time. So I was like, you know, nobody else is here. You know, I want to make sure he's okay. And they said, no, because privacy laws, whatever, we can't tell you where he is. You're not family. So I didn't know what to do, you know? And uh, I go by his place. His car was never there. So I called my dad, or I sent him a mess, an email or something that was telling him what was going on. So my dad ended up tracking him down Had, uh, through his through his brother who I didn't know my dad knew his brother so he's in a like a retirement home kind of thing now and it's funny I go see him and I talk to him about it and he says he wishes he was at home when you talk about his property and his houses he never talks about the fact that they're destroyed and you can't live in it <laughs> like it didn't really happen I don't know I don't know what to make of it, you know. But I try to talk to him about things that he likes to talk about, I try to figure out where that's at. And uh, he played soccer in high school in the tuba. Then he went to Ohio State. And I said to him, did you play soccer or the tuba at Ohio State? And he said, no, I wanted to play in the marching band. which You know, it was like a world-famous marching band. And I said, did you play? And he said, no. And I said, how How come? He said, because the first year I had chemistry and physics, both three hour labs each week. And I didn't have time to do anything. I couldn't play soccer and I couldn't play the tuba. I said, Do you ever play the tuba again? And he said, No, never again. It's funny, so it just makes me think you know, you see a homeless person dirty, smelly, homeless person. You don't know the story, you know. Arnie's a nuclear physicist. He's got piles of money. Went to Ohio State, plays the tuba, played soccer as a kid. You know, had a mom and dad. It's just this odd little story. I don't know that I I have a point to the story other than just kind of talk about him, I feel like he never had kids of his own. I feel like he's going to kind of just disappear one day. Arnie's going to disappear. You know, I go see him. I I think my dad goes once in a while to see him. He said his ex-wife comes to visit, but I don't know if that's true or not. He must be divorced 20 years now. But I think that someday I'm going to go and he's just going to be gone. No one's ever going to remember the guy. He taught my dad how to make soup. My dad, if you... I obviously don't know my dad, so that's not really a, a telling thing. But my dad makes the best soup. And Arnie taught him how to make soup. And Arnie taught him to be adventurous with it. Try different things. And don't follow recipes and do all this stuff. Kind of like really coached him through the idea he could make soup. it's pretty cool and then Arnie got my dad to get a motorcycle (laughs) when I was a kid my dad had a motorcycle and uh, you know four or five times a year he'd ride it to work and back and that was about it but he used to take it to my grandmother's house because my grandmother was horrified by it and he would do it just to aggravate her I always thought it was funny But that's Arnie. He worked until they wouldn't let him work anymore. You know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of Bartleby the Scrivener. You ever read that story? Herman Melville's short story, Bartleby the Scrivener? It's about this guy who goes to work as a... Before they had computers and inkjet, laserjet printers and copy machines and all that stuff, somebody had to rewrite things by hand. So if you had a legal contract, for example... You'd have to write it multiple times, exactly the same. So that each everyone who signs it gets a copy, and then there's a copy that gets filed, and the lawyer keeps it. Going, all this stuff. So you had to write all these copies. That, somebody actually did do that. You know, there was a contract, and they would rewrite it. And that person was called a scrivener. So Melvin wrote this story about Bartleby the Scrivener, and Bartleby went to work in this legal office in New York City, and. Uh, He just didn't want to do anything. He didn't want to do his job. He didn't want to leave the office. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do one. And finally just faded away and died. And I feel like that's Arnie in a way. Like he didn't want to fix his roof on his house. He didn't want to fix the apartment when the tree fell on it. He didn't want to do anything about all the cars in the in the on the grounds. And and now the whole thing is totally overgrown and wild. So in the decade he lived in the driveway, the properties are sort of consuming all the things that, that are there. Nature is reclaiming its stealth. He could have had an old thing bulldozed and put a nice house smack in the middle of it. He could have done anything he wanted to do, uh, but he didn't want to do any of it. He'd rather not. Here's this fascinating guy, helped design reactor cores for aircraft carriers, and and he's just going to fade away into nothing, I think. And it makes me sad. I think that he's, a, you know, he's a he's a really good man, and he and uh, he's done a lot for his country, and he's he's done a lot for uh, I don't know for me, I guess. It always made me feel included. And I just wanted to tell that story. The reason there was no podcast last Thursday is because I went to go see him, and I couldn't figure out how to tell the story. You know, I'm happy that he's not in the driveway anymore. He's in this place with they feed him and he's got hot and cold water and he's got heat and air conditioning and they do his laundry so he's got clean clothes all the time but weird way I guess going to the hospital is a good thing I think when he got out of the hospital they sent him right to rehab from rehab they sent him here And he said he'd like to go home, but they won't let him, which I think is funny, because obviously they'd let him. But the other funny thing is he kept complaining about how expensive the place was. It's not not that expensive. But um, yeah, it's a nice place, so good for Arnie. All right, so listen, the thing with Trump and the animals. So uh, there was a whole big hubbub last week, because Trump called MS-13s animals, and then the Democrats and the liberal media decided to try to run with it and make it seem like Trump was saying that all immigrants are animals, or all illegal immigrants are animals, and obviously you can go look up the quote, it's not that complicated and so people go look up the quote and immediately just like laughing at the media for telling the story wrong on purpose and getting caught in five minutes the most absurd thing but um so and then people were saying it's not right to call anyone animals, and People on the right are saying, "No, they are animals." I'm going to weigh in, but I, I agree they're not animals, and it's because they're evil. You know the things MS-13 does: the brutal murders, torturing people, mur- uh, rape, just destruction, just a reign of terror everywhere they operate is evil. And in order to be evil, you have to be conscious of the fact that what you're doing is hurting another person. So when a, when a bear eats an elk or a deer or something back to front, you know, tail to head while it's still alive, the bear's not being evil because it doesn't, it doesn't register that that's doing the deer any disservice or harm. It's not doing it to, to cause pain, it's just doing it the way it does things. And a human being who's aware, acutely aware of their own frailties, then preying on another person's frailties is evil. And that's what we're talking about. So I think they're not animals, they're distinctly human. The Nazis weren't animals, the Soviets weren't animals, Mao's China, they weren't animals. They're doing evil, fully aware of the fact that they're hurting another person, and most likely because they're hurting another person, right? There's a there's a there's a level of psychopathy there. And the mistake that we make in saying like, "Oh, they're animals," is to is to differentiate them from ourselves. So the left is mad because they think that you should include them with us, like, "Oh, they're just like us. They're wonderful people, just like we are." Don't call anyone an animal. And that's right and wrong all at the same time. They are just like us. In that you have the potential to do evil. Not in that they are inherently good. Which is a different discussion whether they are or they're not. That's not the point. The point is that there's nothing different about the human beings who participated in in the Nazi takeover of of Eastern Europe. Rounding people up, sending them to concentration camps, working them to death, torturing them, starving them, going into battle against Russia, not following the not following the Geneva Convention, and people in Germany today—it's the same people. So you, you can say, like, "Oh, well, the people in Germany today didn't do it." I 100% agree with you. They're not culpable for the act, but you should know that you have it in you to do it. Human beings have the potential to do great good, compassion, empathy, love, forgiveness, kindness, and also have the potential to do great evil, to hurt other people. That exists in you and in the people of MS-13 and in Nazi Germans and in Soviets, in everybody. You are both things. So to see a group of El Salvadorian psychopaths with their faces tattooed and to say they're animals, it's to suggest that they're so different from you that you could never do what they're doing. And that's wrong. That's false. I don't believe that. I think you have the potential in you to do great evil. And these people are doing great evil. And it's important because it's important that you recognize it in yourself. And that's how you can avoid doing it. By being aware of it. Being aware of how it happens. And being aware of how it could happen to you. And figuring out how to be a better person. How not to be evil. Every single day. Is important. But you have to recognize that you could potentially be that so it doesn't do any although I'm not upset that the president called them animals I'm not offended it doesn't bother me I just think it's not the right way to think about it they're not different from you I'm not saying we should let them in the country <laughs> they do horrible things they commit evil on a regular basis But it's not because they're not human, it's because they are human. That idea of knowing, full on knowing, what you're about to do will cause pain to other people and then doing it anyway is uniquely human. We had a cat growing up. My brother wanted the cat, talked my dad into it. He might have been drinking the time he agreed to the cat but then I was little I was probably five or six and my brother was eight or nine or ten maybe and uh and so it quickly became my mother's cat to take care of because my brother didn't feed it or get it water change the litter box or any of that stuff so but this thing would go outside it would just kill everything that moved bunnies squirrels chipmunks moles birds Cat wasn't evil. It wasn't trying to do harm to those creatures. It wasn't trying to deny, you know, baby bunnies their mother. It's just being a cat. Which is very different. From a human being who tortures another human being. Or who murders another human being or who rapes a woman. It's very different. As a human being, you're fully aware of the fact that what you're doing is wrong. I got in this weird, I got stuck in this weird debate with a bunch of atheists about a month ago on Twitter. And uh, they were very angry about the idea of sin. And they, they claimed it was arbitrary and that it was not beneficial to believe in it. And they said, well, have you ever done anything that you knew yourself was wrong? That you judged for yourself to be wrong and you did it anyway? And they wouldn't answer that simple question, which I thought was so telling to the whole thing, but but that's it, right? Like, you know you're not supposed to do certain things and you do them anyway. And that's what evil is. It's inside of you as a person. So let's not call them animals. Let's call them evil people because it's important that we recognize in ourselves the capacity to do harm and that we mitigate it in some way. You know, every person's probably got to find their own way, but... Choose goodness and compassion and love and not torture and murder and rape. But don't otherize them. Don't act like somehow they're totally different from you. Oh, it's not like us. Those MS-13 gangsters are not like us. Yeah, yeah, they are. You might not have MS-13 tattooed on your face. But they're no different from you. They're evil people doing evil things. They're not animals. And like I said, I'm not offended by the idea the president called them animals. I get it. You know, it paints, a, it paints a nice word picture. And that's fine. But it's not the truth. It also takes away from individual blame, right? So like if it's, if it's, they're all animals, then you don't have to sit there one at a time and figure out who did what, and whatever. Listen, I hope you have a great day today. I hope you enjoyed the Arnie story. If you could, share this with a friend. And leave me a comment so I know what you thought. All right, thanks so much. We'll see you tomorrow.